chapter 2. We will be going through verses 1 through 8. And this is about uh, don't neglect salvation. So, as we start this chapter today, uh, well, I'll pause. You read it. You read Hebrews. Mark said he read it. You read the whole thing? No, I know, but I was like, you read the whole thing? It did more me this week. So I, I do want to, but no, I want to, because I told, I told Olivia that you read it. I was like, oh, that's really cool. Like, you know, it's, that's good. Uh, so I would encourage you guys to, to read it. You know, if you have it, I'm not going to make you, but <laughs> I can't make you, but but read read Hebrews and then then but you you've read it all so now you just go back like go back and just take your time go slow again like you can just do chapter two this week and, and go slow and as you said you didn't really get it uh, and I and when we started it I said most people a lot of people don't get it like they really don't understand it some some do some don't and it's very besides the book of revelation it's very old testament in the sense of if you don't know all the stuff that has taken place in the covenant between god and israel and like you're not going to understand a lot of the stuff that the, this author is saying so it, it it is hard and that's why you have to look back you have to know and it is a good thing to educate yourself in what you believe in the sense of you have a book, a manual, per se, of instruction and belief and doctrine, but very few Christians today have ever read the entire Bible, you know? So it's good to at least read, read through it, even if you don't understand it, <laughs> understand it at all, you know? So it's good to do that. So I, I just say cool for doing it. Uh, I think that's awesome. All right. So I mentioned last week at the end that this, starting with chapter two, this is the first of five warnings in this letter. Uh, and this is the briefest of them all. Now you're going to get different takes on these warnings. All right. And we'll, we'll, we'll start about that. We'll, we'll talk about it in a moment when we get there. But, um, I thought about sharing the, the different views, but I don't. I, I don't. I, I'm trying to get be more simplified for you guys um, instead of going all over the place. This view, that view, and this view, and that, and then bring it back, and then it's like you're still trying to think about the first view I've represented <laughs> or presented to you. All right, but there's like uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of people that say there's, especially when we get to Hebrews six, that these warnings are about Christians losing their salvation. And I'm going to say this has nothing to do. None of these warnings are about that, okay? Especially 6. Hebrews 6 has nothing to do with Christians losing their salvation, but we'll get there when we get there, okay? So this, this text here in chapter 2 starts with therefore, okay? Which means for this reason. So anytime, I've said this before, anytime there's a therefore, we need to find out what, what it's there for, right? Uh, here it begins by telling us that chapter one is the reason for the duty that the author states, okay? So it's, remember, we, we all know this. There was never chapters and verses. It was one long letter and all that. So this is 
continuing from the end of chapter 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. There's that little warning there, and that's what people are going to get the words backsliding and things like that from or losing salvation. We'll address that in a moment. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape, another part of that warning, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts by the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. There's an important point right there, according to his will. Okay, first four, we'll stop there. So first off, we need to ask to whom and what reason is this warning? It doesn't really sound like a, a very strong warning, but it's a warning. To whom and what reason is this warning being made? All right. Now, in our theological view, maybe not all of us here, I don't know. And we understand. I, so I would say in my theological view, I understand he is not talking about losing eternal life. Okay. Or salvation. Because uh, it cannot be lost. <laughs> it's a gift. You don't take gifts away. Uh, but I... I like I said, I, I don't like the phrase once saved, always saved, but eternal security. That's what I believe. I've presented that here. But others will interpret this to mean that, 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 that this is about losing your salvation. And we will see that argument in chapter 6 as well, as I've already mentioned. And so it should be obvious. He's not, though. He's not speaking to unbelievers because he, he wouldn't admonish unbelievers to hold fast. Okay, so we can see by the use of this pronoun, we, right? He says, we must pay, right at the first verse, therefore, we must pay much closer attention. You have to look at these words. We, that means he's speaking to believers, and he's including himself, warning them of the dangers, all right, of neglect, neglecting the salvation. And now we'll make it a little... Here, Olivia and I have already discussed some of this since I've worked through this, and uh, I'll be throwing it out there. This how escape what? We'll get to it. All right. The the author uses this pronoun we five times here, so he's including himself within this uh, warning or admonition. So he doesn't play him, place himself outside of this. He's including himself. All right. In chapter one, uh, there there are no commands for the church. They're, they're, they're not told to do anything. The whole chapter is declaration and celebration of God's uh, final word to the world, which was Jesus and is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That po- that's the point of chapter 1. Now in chapter 2, he begins with this a command or a duty, something they and we must do. And the connection with chapter 1 is very important, okay? Because God has spoken by his Son, in the, those last days, as we saw, and because he is the creator and the sustainer and owner, ruler, redeemer, how many, you know, so many things, right? Of the world, he's above all angels. 
Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. That's what he says. So the first command in this book, the first duty mentioned is that we give heed to the word of God in his son, Jesus. God has spoken by his son. So listen, listen very carefully to him. And I don't mean be, just be a red letter Christian. <laughs> what the author is saying here is that in the Christian life, we must go on listening to God's word in Christ. We must do this with close attention. We, we cannot treat it casually. We cannot act as if we already know all we need to know or that we have nothing to gain from listening to Christ. The point is, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Learn more from him as you can, every day if you can. Learn what he is like and what he says and the way he sees the world. Oh, I'm going to rant now. <laughs> Feel the rant coming on. Everything, have you noticed in our culture, you said it well yesterday, they define the culture is now taking things and defining it for themselves. That is beyond. That is not the definition of whatever it is, right? They love to come in and go, no, 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 no. Like, it's this, right? It's this. If you disagree with it, then you should be out. You're canceled. The relevant church, the woke church, there's liberal woke theology. It's all over. They say the same thing. It's always under the name. It's always love. God is love. We know this. But I just said, consider Jesus, what he is like, what he says, how he sees the world. Love. I was told the, well, I wasn't told. I was, it doesn't matter. It's public. It's on Facebook. So I'll mention it. But they were like, why? Why? Somebody was saying somebody else. Why would you say this about somebody? And they, they didn't call the person out by name or anything. You're belittle. Uh, why would you do this, these things? Say these things, brother. Uh, when they're doing every, all these things in the name of Jesus and the church sees that and they don't like it. And my reaction was the church isn't attractive to the world anyway. <laughs> Especially right now. Right. It's not. It's not attractive to the world. Jesus called the leaders whitewashed tombs, right? He called them names. Jesus called people names. <laughs> he did. Doesn't mean that we have a hundred percent passport here to to say you're a jerk, man. Like <laughs> you jerk, get out of my church, right? Like that's not where I'm getting. But I'm saying you you look you look to see, and when you read the Bible, you're 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 reading what God has ha had to say about things because it's inspired, right? This author is inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's writing under inspiration. So we've gone through Jude. You know, I said why not read Jude to this person? Read Jude, read Galatians, read Colossians. I said, well, read about three quarters of the New Testament, right? On the dangers of, of mocking and, and false teachings and this or that are coming against one another and, and saying that's of the devil. Because <laughs> that that's, that's the context here. People going back and forth, your theology is of the devil, no, yours is, right? Uh, everything's like, we just got love. 
let's just love each other all the time. But I said, you forget in the attribute of love is justice. And with justice is wrath, which we would consider anger as what, well, you know, uh, I, I've tried to deal with it one, one, two Sundays here uh, as side notes about the, the, the hate thing. God, you know, we say God hates sin. It's the only word that we can, can use. Does God hate? He can't hate, right? But he can. But the reason why he can hate is because he doesn't sin when he hates because God doesn't sin, right? So anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm just going on a rant now. But we have to know these things to understand that we can't just go, don't do this. It doesn't look good when we're commanded in Scripture to actually bring these things up, to confront these things, to confront these people, and to talk about these things, whether it's on social media or not. You know, most people would prefer it to happen behind closed doors, but you can't always do that. When you learn more, yes, there's love, there's grace, and there's mercy, but there's tie to all these other things as well that has encompassed it all. Am I doing okay? Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I'll stop with that. But I'm saying, you consider Jesus was not just like, they're like, well, God doesn't control everything. Look at the evil in the world. And it's like, well, he destroyed the world with a flood. He said he was going to raise Babylon up to be a ruthless nation. Uh, he lets an entity be a lying spirit uh, to somebody to deceive somebody. And he lets the world kill his son. We have to reconcile the things that are in the Bible in alignment with the whole counsel of God to understand him. It can't be just like, well, Jesus, Jesus said they'll know you. you the, the world will know you because you know, my love, right? Or by love, we'll know you. Well, there's a lot more tied up into that. So, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I'll go on now. It'll make the sermon a little longer. That's nice. <laughs> All right, so one, one of the greatest, then, or not the greatest, but one of the great burdens, then, of this book in Hebrews is that its readers, right, and us learning this, see how serious it is to listen to Jesus. All right, which is the word of God. He's the word of God, right? So consider Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus. It's the first commandment in this book. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it, okay? Drift away is used of things which uh, the author is using, what he has in mind is a, a boat in a river going away from this foundation, from the land, okay? It's most, it, it can most often used of something that has carelessly or thoughtlessly been allowed to slip away. It's very close to, to being about uh, Christians being in peril of no firm foundation or having, having no fixed landing place, all right? Drifting away is failing to gain a security, so as later warnings reveal, the author is concerned with major defections from the Christian life, not a loss of salvation. And these major defections can be the result of a drift. All right. They, they, they also just don't happen overnight. They're usually a result in neglecting certain disciplines in our spiritual life, like studying and prayer and worship. 
And so the author of Hebrews is warning believers that if they do not pay closer attention to the word of God, to Christ, they'll just float away. But they're not lost, but they're going to float. They're drifting. They have no solid foundation. They will drift away from God's word. The point is that there's no standing still. If you do not li listen earnestly to Jesus, you, if you do not consider him daily, fix your eyes on him, then you will not stand still. Right? You can just drift. Drifting is no good. All right? But the re remedy is to pay attention to what you have heard. All right. Now, also in context, many in the early church they weren't stand, they they uh, they weren't standing still, focusing on Christ, right? And they were in danger of drifting, obviously because they had not considered Jesus higher than the angels, as we've already seen. So the author draws a comparison to angels and the messages that they delivered. That the word spoken through angels is reference, okay? This is reference to the law of Moses delivered by angels as part of the old covenant. The world or the word was always uh, unalterable, he says. It never had a clause uh, for amendment. So God's, God's law for Israel was, was unalterable, okay? According to Jesus, all law had to be accomplished. So in the Old Testament, God did not yet speak directly through his son on, on the earth. He spoke through uh, the intermediary messengers, right? Hebrews says angels were involved in the revelation of God's word. Uh, so nevertheless, the firmness of this mediated word was so great that, that, uh, that every neglect, every rejection or rebellion of it was punishable with just recompense. Okay, there's no provision in the law for intentional sin is what I'm saying. So what what the author is really saying is do not. All right. Do not neglect being loved by God. Don't neglect being forgiven and accepted and protected and strengthened and guided by almighty God. Don't neglect the sacrifice of Christ's life on the cross. Don't neglect that free gift of righteousness imputed to you by faith. Don't neglect the removal of God's wrath and eternal death and the reconciled uh, presence of the Lord in your life, right? Don't neglect the indwelling Holy Spirit. Don't neglect fellowship of friendship of the living Jesus. Don't neglect radiance of God's glory in the face of Christ. Don't neglect the free access to the throne of grace. Do not neglect the inexhaustible treasure of God's promises in which he's given to us. This is great salvation. Neglecting it is wrong. It's evil. Do, do not neglect such a great salvation. That's what he's saying. Don't neglect it. He's not saying you're going to lose it. He's saying don't neglect it. Don't take it for granted. In other words, if we ignore the salvation offered in Christ, what penalties await us then? Is it possible then the author is saying there's no escape from a temporal judgment? And that's where we land on this. <laughs> the author moves quickly 
back to reaffirming the truth of the gospel revealed in Christ, okay? In the second half of verse 3, it testifies that this salvation, okay, the gospel, was the word spoken by the Lord himself, and it was confirmed by the church by those who heard the Lord. Those who heard were the apostles. They confirmed the words of Christ in their writings. And the point is to highlight how bad it is to neglect such a great salvation, but not by, not by focusing on the greatness of the salvation, but on the sufficiency of the confirmation of the great, great, greatness of it as well. Because there's confirmation from these men. All right, so uh, three, three and four, the verses intended to, to, intended to say to the original readers and to us, there have been more than enough confirmations of the truth of this great salvation for you. To believe it and embrace it and love it, therefore not neglect it. But then in verse 4, we also have the Lord testifying to the truth of the gospel through signs and wonders in the, in the early church. Miracles that are proof that, uh, that the claims of Christ and the apostles were trustworthy. And miracles happen today as well. And, and from then until now, the gifts of the Holy Spirit given to the church according to the Lord's will, right? Continue then to testify the truth of the gospel. All right? So the claims of the, go the gospel are trustworthy. That's what he's saying, right? They came from a superior source. They were thoroughly validated by God and then by his servants. We simply cannot neglect this. And yet some in the church were doing exactly that. So that's what's going on. So as we have already learned, their stumbling block was a preoccupation with angels. Okay? But it goes deeper than that. The real concern was his incarnation and what it meant that Jesus died in the end. All right? So you have to understand the Jewish believer. For a Jewish believer, the superiority of Christ and his message was hard to swallow. It was a tough pill to swallow. Uh, because when, when they re re reflect on their Messiah in a frail, what they perceived as a frail human body that was crucified by the Roman enemies, right? That whole image contradicts their expectation of this conquering all-powerful Christ coming to rule with his kingdom on earth. So by comparison, angels appear far more majestic and important, right? Therefore, their message found in the law, the law of Moses, appears to trump the message delivered by Christ, all right? So to these wavering, you know, if you will, wavering members of the early church, the writer moves his discussion of angels to an explanation for why the Messiah needed to take the form of man and die. All right, so three and four is saying that the witnesses, the witnesses have done their part. The historical, the moral, the spiritual reality of God's great, great salvation has been displayed. If we neglect this, if we drift away, if we... Don't stand still, have foundation, we could experience the chastising hand of God. People don't like that. Pay attention to what you've heard, spend time in God's word, and with God's people. 
In other words, for the saved believer, salvation is eternal. It is secure. It cannot be lost. You can look at John 10, 28, 29, Jude 1, 24. However, believers still live in a world of cause and effect, right? Neglecting the truths of the faith, falling into sin will always have consequences. We know this, right? Now, the question is, is it brought on from God or not? That's our discussion that we had, right? So having warned them to pay closer attention to the message of Christ, the author proceeds to explain why it was that Jesus came to earth in such a lowly form as a man determined to die and returns to the Old Testament. Okay, he's going to go back to the Old Testament now to prove his point. And let me point out that this is uh, this is the way we should all approach such things, okay? Christian conversation, debate, apologetics, all of that, that mean, means the process of making reasoned arguments, all right? In justification of doctrine and viewpoints. It's proving that what you believe is true and the Bible is to be our proof of that, not our feelings or our experiences, all right? But our, our testimonies are a source of edification for the believer, but not proof to per persuade the unbeliever, okay? But it, this is the way we need to do this. We, we should learn from how the, uh, the Holy Spirit inspires these authors to debate, if you will. So verses five and eight. For it was not to angels that God sub subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Uh, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So the author introduces a quote from Psalm 8 by saying that angels are never appointed to rule over the kingdom of God or any kingdom. Instead, he says that it will be ruled by the Son of Man, which is a messianic term that's found in Daniel 7. So this over, clear overarching uh, meaning of this verse is God never promised to subject the coming world to angels. Okay, The author stresses this truth because it's quite possible that the Hebrew believers were being influenced by uh, this Jewish group of people called the uh, uh, Qumran. Is that how you say it? <laughs> okay. Q-U-M-R-A-N. They anticipated the advent of two messiahs. All right. There was a, a kingly and a priestly uh, messiah, both of whom would be subordinate to the archangel Michael. All right, so assigning supremacy to an angelic being in the future world. So the, 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 he's refuting this. No, we have the, the, the word world again here in the Greek. It states the world that is coming. Okay, we've seen that the world can be cosmos, which is the universe, and aeon, which is ages. But here we have a new one, okamene. All right, this means the inhabited earth. But this world is to come or coming, and in Greek is mellow, which means to be about to. So it's soon. 
Whatever the, that, this world was, the writer is telling them that it was about to come, okay? It was near in time. It's soon to arrive. The author tells us that this world is one. This is the one that he's been talking about, of which we are speaking, he says. The phrase looks back to chapter 1, 10 through 14, which emphasizes the change in covenants, okay? The age to come. This is where we're at. From the old to the new. The author is not talking about the end of the world here, but the end of the old covenant Israel and the old covenant age, the old covenant that was mediated by angels was about to end, but Christ's kingdom will never end. Thus, Christ is superior to the angels. So when you go back to the psalm, the author is about to demonstrate by application, he's going to apply Psalm 8 to Christ, that all things, angels included, are subjected to his sovereignty. Okay, uh, Psalm 8 is this ode on the majesty of God and the insig um, insignificance, yet at the same time, remarkable future of humanity. It, it, the psalm was not regarded by Jews to be messianic, all right? And at first sight, it might appear to ha have a, a, a little in the way of messianic Content Yet in the New Testament, it's repeatedly applied to Jesus. Uh, in Matthew 21, 16, Jesus quotes this psalm. He applies it to himself. In 1 Corinthians 15, 27, in Ephesians 1, 22, Paul teaches that the psalmist's assertion that God has put all things in subjection under man, uh, man's feet finds its fulfillment in Jesus. So the application to Christ of what the psalm says about man is explained by the fact that the incarnate son was the perfect, right? The only perfect man. I just realized this probably is really not simple. <laughs> is it? It's a lot being said here, all right? That the intention, all right, the intention and achievement of his incarnation was precisely to restore to fallen man the dignity and the wholeness of his existence as he uh, reintegrated in himself the, the grand design of creation. It's just a bunch of big stuff I feel like now. <laughs> Psalm 8 finds its true focus preeminently in him who is uniquely the son of man, right? In, in, in whom alone the dominion of man is restored, that only in union with Jesus can man become uh, man as God meant and made him to be in Christ. So the psalmist asks, what there is about man that the great God should just stoop to help him, Right? How did God visit man in order uh, to help him? So the psalmist raises exactly that same question the author's skeptical audience is asking. How could God give such regard to, to man? To Christ in human form. If the Son is to be so powerful and his message is so important, higher than the angels, then why did he appear in such a lowly way? Why? Which... Many ask today, right? It's exactly the problem that these Jews in the early church were struggling to answer. 
They didn't get it. Their answer to this dilemma was to conclude that Jesus wasn't as important as the angels at all, right? But the psalmist answers the question very differently. He declares in verse 7 that the Father made Christ to be a little lower than the angels, but only for a little while. The short time is the time that Christ spent on earth. During that time, Jesus was no less God, okay? 100% man, 100% God. It's called the hypostatic union. Yet he willingly took the lesser form of man to please the Father. But in the, the conclusion is that, that Jesus' time living lower than angels will give way to an eternity, an eternity of glory and honor. He will rule and reign over the creation and all things will be in subjection to him, even the angels. This is the incarnation, all right? God became man, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory uh, as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That's John 1, 14. The word became flesh has been expressed by the theological word incarnation, all right? It means in uh, enfleshment, the act of assuming flesh. God chose to become united to true humanity. The incarnation came about through the miracle of the virgin birth. We know this, right? The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Of course, we know this. We know this from the gospel. We know it because of Christmas. We know it because of Easter that at the carnation or carnation incarnation, God, right? God, the son, the second person of the one triune God was forever joined to true humanity. And that joining together has been uh, <clears throat> designated, as I said, as the hypostatic union. So that doctrine is the doctrine of the personal union of those two natures, the divine and the human of the Lord Jesus. All right, this is, is 100% God, 100% man. Like I said, this is where we get that other, that other word, theanthropic, okay? Which means theos, which means God, and anthropos, which means man. Jesus Christ is the God-man. He is one person with two natures. Okay, so Jesus uh, it, it, it is the one person with the two natures. We cannot illustrate this in the human realm. Can't do it. Okay. Jesus is different from God in that he is man. He is mankind and different from mankind in that he is God. I, I don't know. I don't know how it works any further than that. You just try to explain Trinity. I don't know. I only know what the word says beyond that. How's it work? Can't tell you. <laughs> I accept it though, right? <laughs> He is the unique person, a species unique, if you will, as I said, of the universe. He is the God-man. This is how God visited man, if you will, visited, right? It was through the incarnation. So the author is using Psalm 8 because it marks the point of transition from the concept of man in general to the incarnate redeemer. All right, so just to be sure we get the point, he adds in verse 8, okay, that when the Father says all things are going to be subject to Christ, that he means everything. The angels don't sit at the right hand of God. Christ does. Christ is Lord of all. Everything is in subjection to him. So there's two, there's, there's two views to this, 
depending on your end times view. I'm not going to go, but I'm almost done. I'm not going to get deep into it. All right, to some, to some, the first century believers didn't see, didn't see everything subject to him because uh, the, the, the judgment that come was in 70 AD on Jerusalem had not yet occurred. Christ's enemy is said to have been Judaism, the old covenant here, okay? Now, not old covenant, but Judaism, because it was trying to take over and add to the gospel. Okay, it was, it was still very much active at the time of the writing. So that's the view. They say uh, that enemy is Judaism. They understand that the enemies of Christ that were going to soon, right, soon be in subjection to him were the nation Israel. So Jesus, Jesus in the parable in Luke 19 was th- uh, what of this speaking of the Jewish nation in that view, along with other parables. And these enemies of Christ would themselves then within the next five years of this writing be destroyed in 70 AD. Christ came in judgment, the nation of Israel and the temple was destroyed. Okay, to others, because I'm just giving you guys both interpretations. So you can take it and then, then search it out if you wish. The other, okay, the other view is that, uh, like, it's different. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to Christ one day. There's an end day, a last day, a day of judgment. All will rise, all will bow, uh, the, you know, all that. Every unbeliever, every demon, the Antichrist, the devil himself will one day bow in subjection to Jesus according to that in time view. Then they're cast out. The world's redeemed. Jesus reigns. That's the two views when you take that verse and split it there and, and, and try to figure out where you land. Okay, that's it. I'm not pushing anything on anybody. Next week then in verse 9, the author will start to explain what was gained by sending Jesus in this lowly form as man to further his arguments. Okay, is there any questions?